Well, we're now wrapping up the seventh month. We're coming to the conclusion of the seventh month of my pastorate here. And guys, I am so proud of you. You guys are wonderful. From the first day we arrived, you guys have been showering love upon us. I've seen you guys rise up to help each other. I've seen people start helping out around the church. I've seen you guys come and and fellowship together and bring food and volunteer, support, encourage. Guys, you guys are doing a great job. And I'm very proud to be your pastor. So thank you. I am thrilled at what I see. I'm thrilled that I see people who who, who went through a, a tough time starting to come back and starting to, uh, starting to blossom again the way crops after a hard rain might seem to be wilted, but yet they, they come back. We th- rejoice about that fact. So guys, just know right off the bat that much I think like Paul here, it's not a, it's not a word, get to work, straighten up. It's a Y'all are doing great. Keep it up. Keep it up. I remember uh, when I was a boy, the, uh, the game Tetris came out. Y'all remember Tetris back in the early 80s? And, uh, you know, I, it was addicting. I got on, you know, I played it on my old first-generation Nintendo. And it got to the point, though, where... I got to a level that I just could not beat. And I tried, and I tried, and I tried. Hours a day, days of the week, for weeks and weeks. And finally, when I just invested so much time and effort in overcoming this level, and I couldn't, I did what many people do, when they reach a point where they just think that they've faced something that's insurmountable. I gave up. I got tired of wasting my time. Most people do that. When we think that we are facing something that is an impossible task, and we have put what we deem to be a lot of effort into it, and we reach a point where we don't see any more forward progress as being possible, We decide to cut our losses. That's what we do. People don't like to continually pour into something that they believe is a waste of their time. We don't like being that hamster on a wheel, going around and around and around. Now, why do I bring that up? Because oftentimes in the Christian life, people get tired. It is so hard to continually fight the fight. In this book and in the Bible, the Christian life is, de- is described as a war. But man, it gets so hard fighting a war nonstop, doesn't it? It's so tiring. And when you consider that the war is not just out there, it's not like you, you leave the safety of a base and you go out. The war is in here. So wherever we go, wherever I am, there it is. It just gets tiring. 
And so when we're on the path of discipleship, and eventually it's like we, we, we hit a plateau or we hit a, we hit a wall or something, and it feels like we're just not getting anywhere. We just get tired. And it's easy at that point to just throw up our hands. Maybe some of you are at that point. You've been fighting for a long time. And you feel like, I've reached, I've reached my breaking point. I can't keep going on. I want to let you know, the good news for you today is you can keep going on because God has got a hold of you. You can keep fighting that fight because God is in you, working through you to fight the fight. Now, Paul wants to encourage his folks. He began a line of thought in chapter 1, verse 27, when he abruptly changes from talking about his circumstance to talking about theirs. And he talks about living as a citizen of this kingdom, in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And he carries that line of thought through the end of verse 18. So we've come now to the concluding thought, the concluding words of this long protracted thought about what does it mean, what does it look like to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. This whole book, this chapter in particular, is a call to unity. Christianity is a team sport. We are not meant to try to do it alone. And so for that unity and that teamwork to happen, we're called to humility. And so he gives the example par excellence of Jesus himself in verses 5 through 11. And many of us, we can be inspired when we see the words, the, the life of Jesus portrayed before us. But many of us can also feel overwhelmed. Because after all, Jesus is perfect. And guess what? I'm not. And if Jesus is the standard, I, I, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And many of us can feel overwhelmed. And so it's within that context that Paul then wants to remind his folks, you can do it. I'm proud of you. You can do it. So, I want you to know, you can do it. Okay? And Paul makes this point with three subpoints in this passage. We're going to learn that we can do it because of the foundation of our walk. We can do it because of the fuel for our work. And we can do it because of the fullness of our witness. So three things that Paul shows us in this passage that all are meant to encourage us in our walk as Christians. As our walk as Christians together, we can do it. Three things. We see the foundation for our walk. Look with me at verse 12, the first part. Therefore, my beloved. 
The word therefore reminds us, as you know, that he's about to make a conclusion that is based upon what has come before. And what came before? The example of Christ in verses 5 through 11. So Christ is the example. Christ is the standard. And like I just said, many of us can say, wow, well, I, I can't live up to that. Now, what can happen here in the Christian life is we can realize that Christ is the standard and he's perfect in every way. I mean, how can you have more humility than to be equal with God and give it all up and become a a, a servant who subjects himself to death on a cross? How do you do that? And we find ourselves just throwing up our hands and, 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 and surrender almost. I can't do it, God. And we can think if that's the standard, and if God is the judge, then he must be standing there with crossed arms and a critical look on his face, tapping his foot impatiently while we continually mess up and miss the mark and fail to meet the standard that he has set before us. Have you ever thought, I'm a failure? God must be disappointed in me. I'm such a bad, imperfect Christian. I don't model the example of Christ. I don't have the mind that was in Christ. I continually mess up. I sin sometimes and I derive happiness from it. I sin other times and I regret it immediately, but I'm just not perfect. So God must look at me as if I'm a failure. Is that you? Has that ever been you? Yeah. Look what Paul does here. He knows he's writing to fallible sinners. He's just been talking about how, how they need to stop being contentious and they need to be unified. And what does he say here? Therefore, my beloved. Do you know what it means? Do you know what the implications are of being called beloved? It's an object of delight and affection. Think about that. He's just put forth the example of Christ, knowing that he's talking to people who are sinful, who can't possibly, in their own strength, live up to that. And he refers to them as, my beloved. Do you see what that means? That we stand and we start from a posture of one in which we are embraced by God as precious. God is not standing over us looking like some critical judge at the Olympics waiting for any flaw, any imperfection in the way the muscles work while you're striking a pose or something. God accepts us as precious In Christ. And so you and I, we start our Christian life and we live our Christian life from a foundation of acceptance. We are not trying to earn God's acceptance. It's already there. So think about that. God doesn't look at us as people who need to live up to some standard in order for him to like us. He adores you. And so as you stumble around in the Christian life, 
Please lose the picture of God standing there impatiently tapping his foot. No. He's more like the adoring parent who stands there as their toddler who's just learning how to walk is making their way across the room and they're tripping and they're bumping into things and they're not walking in a straight line. Come on, come on. Your father adores you. He adores you in Christ. And so he says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, and he goes on. All right. So since we start from a platform of acceptance, he moves on and he gives them credit for having obeyed. This looks back to what he just says about Jesus, about he was obedient even to the point of death. So he's using the same word that was just described to Jesus perfectly to describe the way they've been acting. But wait, Ben, they weren't being perfect. But yet they're credited. They're credited with having obeyed. What I want you to understand is that the foundation of acceptance and being precious to God that we have in Christ is such that when Christ looks at us and looks at our imperfect attempts at trying to please our Father, He accepts them as perfect. Our Westminster Confession of Faith spells this out very meticulously. The Westminster Confession of Faith has a whole chapter on good works. But specifically, chapter, paragraph 6 says this, The persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in Him, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that He, looking upon them in His Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied, with many weaknesses and imperfections. You and I, because we are tainted by sin, even our best motives, our best efforts, our best actions are still subject to the frailty and weakness of our flesh. We will fail. But because God accepts us as precious and He adores us in Christ, He looks past our imperfections, and he sees the perfect work of Christ applied to us and our good faith efforts at trying to please God. That is our foundation. So as you live the Christian life, recognize you're not trying to just stay one step ahead of the lash. You're not trying to just hopefully do something, something that will finally make God love me. He loves you, adores you, and he accepts all your imperfect, though well-intentioned efforts to live the Christian life as pleasing in his sight. That's the foundation. You can do it. You can keep on keeping on because you are precious. And he accepts your efforts. But then he goes further. Paul does. And he provides a remarkable fuel for our work. Look with me, please, at the second part of verse 12 through the first part of verse 16. 
So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Okay, we as Christians, we have a precarious relationship to, to good works. Whenever we see works and stuff like that in the Bible, we, we feel kind of precarious because we rightly want to stress that we are saved by faith apart from works. And so anytime we see something like what it says here about working out your salvation, we can start to feel jittery. You know, is he saying that there's something that I do to, to, to work, to, to merit my salvation? No. No. I think Martin Luther said it best when he said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. What do you mean by that? Well, scripturally speaking, I think it's safe to say we are not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. Look with me, please, at Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, where you see it, see it on brilliant display. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's 8 to 9. Okay, so boom, right there in bold declaration, your works do not save you. If they did, it would be a basis for boasting, but God will have no boasting. There is no work that saves you. But then there's verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are not saved by good works, you are saved for good works. Okay? And so when Paul talks about working out our salvation, he does not say work for your own salvation. He doesn't say work at your own salvation. He says work out your own salvation. We have been justified. We have been credited with Christ's righteousness. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And But what that does is it then starts a ball rolling. And justification and the righteousness we receive as credited by God has implication and application and ramification for our lives. And so our salvation has to be then fleshed out in our daily experience. Work out that salvation. Let every aspect of your life not remain unchanged by the working of God in you. Work it out. There are implications of salvation for your life. And in this passage, as we've talked about, he's talking about unity. He's talking about the togetherness of the church. In the Greek, he uses reflexive language here. We don't translate it into the English for some reason. But really, if you want to get technical, it's work out your salvation amongst yourselves. 
And so the implication is clear. The arena of the Christian life is such that the implications of the gospel in our lives require togetherness because it is together as you and I bump into each other and then as we coordinate together and as we provide a full line of defense from the onslaught of the evil one, as we embody one-mindedness and promote the health and growth of the church internally, this togetherness causes us to become increasingly holy. So when Paul talks about working out your salvation amongst yourselves, he's referring to the process of sanctification, becoming holy in our daily experience. You are holy in God's sight. Now, become holy in your life. Become more like Jesus in the way you live. Because God has set it in motion. So, we can then say, okay, well, I'm supposed to work it out. Does that mean it's up to me? No. What's the very next, what are the very next words? For it is God who is at works, who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The whole, for his good pleasure, that, that's an allusion to his free sovereignty. He didn't have to. He didn't have to do anything in you. He didn't have to start a good work in you. That's mentioned back in verse 6 of chapter 1. He could have left you to die in your sin, but according to his good pleasure, he started a work in you out of love for you. And this God will continue that. And so he's at work in you. And people oftentimes really struggle. What's the relationship of God's works to mine? I mean, if God's doing the work, then, then does that sort of, I don't know, cancel out the need for me to do anything? No, no. It is God's work that enables your work. You're able to do anything because God is at work assisting you, working through you. In the Christian life, we tend to fall into one of three errors when it comes to, to uh, salvation. We can think that our spiritual growth is up to us. Do it. Become more holy. We look at all the commands and say, oh, wow, it's up to me. But that's an error. You're not left to fend for yourself. A second error is on the other side. That we, it's, it's, it, it sounds really biblical, but really it's not true. It's, it sounds so spiritual. Just, just let go and let God. There's a funny, funny uh, satirical post about that, about a mountain climber. Um, you may have seen it. The mountain climber falls, you know, like 60 feet and he's in traction because he decided to take his pastor's advice and let go and let God. And the absurdity of the post underscores the, the, the wrongheadedness of the notion. Nowhere in the Bible are you told to let go and let God. You don't. You don't yield up. You don't just throw up your hands and say, God, take the wheel. We are told to work out our salvation. There, in the Reformed understanding, we don't just let go and let God. Why? Because we understand that God works through means. And so God is active in us. He's the energizing force. He's the one who provides the will, which is the inclination and desire, and the 
work, the energy, the effective energy that makes an action happen. God is at work within us. And so we are called then to exercise our will in compliance with his revealed will and do something, knowing that it is God who even makes it possible. And then God works through our workings to bring about the purposes that he has. Think about the number of wicked people who've done whatever wicked actions they want, intending whatever to happen, but yet God works through their wickedness to bring about some good purpose. Imagine how much more so it is than when you're following his word. When you're submitting yourself to the revealed will of God and pursuing righteousness, pursuing holiness, knowing that it is God who makes it possible and it is God who ultimately brings the fruit. So, you may have a hard time figuring it out, but recognize that God is active in you. So you're not just condemned to a life of futility, a life of God giving you demands that you just can't possibly meet. In the words of Augustine, O Lord, command what you will and give what you command. That is what God does here. He's the energizing force that enables you and me to keep the very commands that he issues. And so, God gets the glory, and we get the good. Some of you have kids, most of you have kids, and most of you have taken your kids to the grocery store. And one of the things that we like doing is letting our kids push the, the basket, the grocery basket, now, you get this little tot, you know, he can maybe not even see up over the, over the handle, or maybe his eyes are just right above it, and he's trying to put, and he's bumping, he's, but the only reason he's getting anywhere is because unbeknownst to him, you're up front, sort of holding onto the rail, onto the side of it, sort of bringing it along, keeping it straight, keeping it going. Maybe I'm the only person who's ever done that, am I? I doubt it. God has not just left us alone to flounder. We are called to a life of obedience. But know that God is at work within you to enable you and to promote that obedience. And so the reason why we know that we will become more like Christ and that the Christian life will lead us somewhere is because God has a hold of that cart and he's taken it where it needs to go. So, we are called to recognize that we have a supernatural fuel source that is driving our Christian life. And so we can keep on keeping on. And that fuel is such that it enables us to model citizenship in the kingdom in a way that the people of Israel never did. If you look here at verses, uh, verses 14 uh, verses 14 on down, he's basically quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 38. I'm sorry, 32. Except in the original context, it's Moses calling the people these bad things because they had failed to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. And it says, do everything without grumbling and disputing or grumbling and complaining. Look at Exodus. Look at Numbers. Look at Deuteronomy. Nothing 
Nothing so depicts the Israelites' fundamental sin as that of grumbling and complaining. The grumbling and complaining of the people of Israel reflected a discontent and faithless heart that resulted in them repeatedly, repeatedly dropping the ball and not modeling to the world the greatness of their Savior. The the Hebrew, the ancient, the old covenant notion of evangelism was primarily come and see. They were supposed to live out these laws and that would cause the people of the world to say, what kind of God is this that has people such as this with laws such as that? And it was supposed to be attractive. But instead, they're grumbling, bickering, fighting, arguing, blah, blah, blah. And their faithlessness. And they utterly failed. And so when Paul here brings this up, talking about citizenship, the first citizens of the kingdom were not good examples of citizenship. And he's calling us to get right what they got wrong. And because we have God at work within us, we can do that. And so, don't be a grumbling, complaining, discontented person. Fault-finding, never satisfied. Instead, model the unity that he's just been calling for. And recognize something here. He doesn't tell you to shine in the darkness. You do shine in the darkness. It doesn't matter if you're trying or not. The fact that we're here causes people to reflect upon God. It's amazing how in this, in this town, uh, people know what's going on here. Just this week when I was meeting with contractors, uh, one of them said, uh, you know, I've heard about your church, and, and, and he talked about how things were improving. And I was kind of surprised. This is, you got to remember, this is a small town. People talk. And so kudos to you. The word apparently is getting out that things are getting better. But recognize, the world is watching. And so because of this, we are called to present a unified face and a unified front. This makes Jesus look great. And we can do it. We can look past our personal and petty differences and and, and, and issues because we have an enabling force at work within us. So you can do it. Because you start from a foundation of acceptance and you can do it because you have God at work within you, leading you to where you need to be. That's awesome. But then we see the fullness of our witness. Verses 16 through 18. At the last part, holding fast to the word of Christ's life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Okay, as you remember from chapter 1, the singular aim of Paul's life is to make Jesus look great. Whether he lives or he dies, that's all he wants to do is make Jesus look great. And if that is your aim in life, to make Jesus look great to the world, then if you die, you experience death as gain. And if you live, well, 
That's just more opportunity to make Jesus look great. So it's win-win no matter what happens, okay? And if that is our goal, then recognize this. Because of the togetherness of the church and the togetherness of our community, when you are faithful, it inspires me to faithfulness. When I am faithful, it inspires you to faithfulness. When the person across the aisle is faithful, that encourages you to faithfulness and vice versa. And it becomes, in effect, an increasing bonfire with each person throwing onto that fire a stick and it creates a crescendo. Where am I getting this? What am I talking about? Paul talks about their sacrifice of faith. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament sacrificial system, what they would do is they would sacrifice an animal. Okay? It's, it's dead, it's on the altar, they're getting ready to strike the matches. And what's the last thing they would do as sort of the exclamation point on this sacrifice? They would pour a drink offering out on top of it. And so Paul is here saying that what you guys have been doing is presenting a sacrifice of faith. You guys have been making an offering of faith to your God. And so here I am being poured out as that drink offering on top of that sacrifice. What he's calling them to recognize is that as he lives his life and does his ministry and indeed experiences his death, he's inspiring them. He knows that they will be inspired to continued faithfulness. And he is pleased to be the exclamation point on their own faithfulness because their faithfulness has inspired him and he's looking forward to seeing Jesus Because he's going to be proud. My sacrifice of faith serves as the drink offering on your own. And your sacrifice of and and, and your sacrifice of faith, your drink offering is poured onto mine. And we encourage each other. Think about how when you live life in community. When you go through hardship, when you go through bad times, we pull each other along. Sometimes we got to push each other along, but we cause each other to grow. And as you offer your offering of sacrifice to God, and after I and, and he and she, it becomes a massive thing. And so God looks at us collectively. So remember that. The fullness of our witness is that you and I are part of an organism that is individually and collectively presenting a sacrifice to God that is pleasing in his sight. You're not on your own. So God accepts you from the beginning. He provides the fuel to drive and energize your Christian life. And he has provided you with friends and fellow members to come alongside you to enhance your own offering so that way it presents a remarkable bonfire to our God. You're not alone. He's got helpers without and he's got the Holy Spirit within and it's all on the foundation of his love and acceptance of you. So, good job, guys. I'm so proud to be your pastor. In seven months, it's amazing how far we've come. In just seven months. You guys are doing great. Keep it up. And for those of you who are battle-weary and worn, remember, you can do it. You can keep on keeping on because you are accepted.
you are enabled, and you are supported. Let's pray.